you know, the standards of living haven't really improved for well over 10 years. And then now we've got massive disruption and uncertainty associated with COVID on top of it, which will, which will rumble on for many years to come. What role will trade play in the global economy of the future? Can the multilateral rules-based trading system survive? Or will nationalism and protectionism lead to a world of trade barriers and trading blocks? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2020, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Korteweg of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to this podcast conversation for the AIG Global Trade Series 2020. My name is Rem Korteweg. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands. And today we're going to talk about, is a surge in protectionism inevitable, given the pandemic and pressures on the global trade system? And what does this tell us about the future of trade policy? And to make sense of this all, I'm joined today by three excellent speakers, two of which come from the global organization of the International Chamber of Commerce. On the one hand, I have Emmanuel Butto-Stubbs, who is Secretary General of the ICC France. And secondly, Chris Southworth, who is the Secretary General of the ICC UK. Third speaker is Christian Blut who's project manager at the Bertelsmann Stiftung and member of the team working on global economic dynamics. Welcome to you all. Now, as we know, the impact of the pandemic has been enormous. According to the WTO, global trade is expected to fall by anywhere between minus 13 to minus 32%. This means governments will be tempted to give export incentives to domestic industries while restricting imports in order to support their own and to restart their economies. But this development comes on top of concerns that we were already seeing well before the pandemic struck regarding protectionist forces in the global marketplace. We had tit-for-tat tariffs and discretionary measures to restrict trade. They've all been increasing over the past few years. Global Trade Alerts, a NGO looking at restrictive trade measures, has mapped this over the past decade, and we clearly see an upward trajectory. Now, there are also talk of competing blacklists where U.S. and Chinese firms are cutting each other out of the market. There's talk of decoupling, investment screening exercises in different member states of the European Union and the EU at large. The question this raises is, Are we seeing the fracturing of the global trade landscape? Phrased differently, are we now in the era of protectionism? Christian, perhaps I could start with you. What trends are we seeing in terms of global trade restrictive measures? And which are the ones you worry about most? Well, you've already mentioned the global trade alert. And uh, the data from the global trade alert shows that the category of trade distortive measures that is particularly on the rise and has been long before the pandemic, is various kinds of subsidies. And I think that is really something that many people are worrying about. And of course, we need to worry about now even more because in the course of the pandemic, we have seen massive government interventions to stabilize the economy. And 
that is creating international distortions and policymakers will have a tough job at their hands to figure out how to deal with this internationally. How does this look like from the perspective of the ICC? I mean, you represent hundreds, if not thousands of companies across the world. How worried are they, Emmanuel? Well, of course, it is a it is a matter of concern for our members and for the ICC as a, a global network. And the ICC during this crisis uh, has been very active with a kind of continuous activity in relationship with trade ministers of the G20, direct relationship and various statements with uh, WTO, WCO, all the partners in order to plead in favor of the dismantlement, the removal of all the barriers, all the temporary restrictions concerning exports, concerning imports that have been put in place. Because, of course, they have been very numerous. Uh, for instance, at the end of April this year, the use of export restriction peaked when 79 countries implemented something like 117 export restrictions. So uh, there is a lot to do to, in that extent in order to really get rid of all these barriers, of all these protections. They were supposed to be temporary and uh, we have some doubts because for the companies, and particularly for the small and medium-sized companies, it is very important to know exactly if they could export, if they could import, what will be the tariff, if there is a ban or not. Uh, and here, we, we could rely on some databases that have been put in place, for instance, by the WTO or by the WCO, being the World Custom Organization. So we have a, a very long list. But the thing is, are we sure that these lists are updated regularly? Because we have the date of entry into force of these measures, and I will, I, I cannot quote all of them because they are so numerous. Generally, between March or April or even earlier, but we don't know if these measures are still in place, and it's very important in order to maintain the the earlier business, which is more necessary than ever for all the companies because they need to have growth. They need to export. We need to make the global value chains work again. And this is one key element. Chris, if Christian is correct that one of the biggest concerns is also the fact that there's a lot of subsidies being given to companies. And at the same time, what Emmanuel is saying, we need accurate data about what type of measures have been taken. But surely individual companies were also happy to receive those subsidies to weather the storm, right? Chris is right to say the upward trend is important. I mean, the context of this is it goes way, way before COVID. But I think the sort of the COVID crisis is acting as, a, as an amplifier. It's increasing the intensity of, of the number of restrictive measures coming in. I think that's one point, important point. But, uh, you know, the, the whole sort of landscape of protectionism, global trade, the, the World Trade Organization, I think it's just, it's just a long way from, from people's radar. I think companies are trying to survive. Uh, I know for sure here in the UK, companies are big, big brands have already gone bust. Uh, others are seeking bailouts to keep the, the companies operating. And I, I think that's replicated um, elsewhere around the world too. And, and that's a problem because the sort of vigilance over the issue isn't there in the same way because obviously everybody is distracted by just trying to keep day-to-day -day operations moving forward. 
Uh, and I think this, there's another problem where there's a, there's a lag period between when these restrictive measures come in and then the actual impact is felt on the ground, whether that impact is felt by the businesses who are trying to ship goods or services across borders or finance, or the, the consumer at the end of the chain uh, feels that prices are going up because the costs have gone up, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we're in that lag period now where those of us who are closer to it understand that there's a, a lot more barriers in place than there used to be. Uh, the environment's much tougher, but actually in terms of day-to-day business, you may not be quite feeling that yet. And so when that comes, the pressure is going to get more so than, than it currently is at the moment. What would you then say is sort of your key worry at the moment? Is it that lag time, this uncertainty, which is created between the moment when governments introduce new measures and just the regular churn and the necessary time that it requires to process these measures in the real economy? Well, I think the number one priority is to keep the economies afloat. You know, GDP has dropped 20% here. It's the biggest drop in over 100 years. It's extraordinary, and certainly in, a, in, a, in well over a lifetime. So number one priority is protect jobs, keep people safe, keep the economy moving. And then number two priority is keep vigilant and try and put a, an articulate narrative to governments as to why we shouldn't have protectionist measures. I, I know if, if you look at the UK... The government is taking actions that in any other context would be deemed protectionist, but they won't call it protectionism. So those measures that are listed as protectionism, I think it is only one piece of the jigsaw. I think there are other measures coming in or already in place which are also protectionist, but they're not being called that and therefore not being registered as such. That's interesting because that kind of seems to suggest that protectionism might not be a dirty word anymore or... If it's still considered a dirty word, we still do it, but it's called different. It's called something in terms of sovereignty or promoting domestic economies. What does that look like from Paris, Emmanuel? Well, of course, you know that the, in France, I mean, the image uh, of the globalization has not been very positive for many years. Uh, and of course, some politicians and uh, some trade unionists uh, made that choice, I mean, to be very negative about globalization in order to gain support for, for themselves. But now, of course, during this crisis, I think there was a kind of sincere discovery of the degree of interdependency between the French economy and economies very remote from France. And of course, it was the case in a very sensitive area uh, for all of us and our family, which is the area of health. So uh, there was this sincere discovery. And of course, there was a a layer of uh, political discourse and explanation. And of course, that feed a very strong feeling for the moment, a very strong demand, a very strong request of uh, protection and uh, taking back control of some es- of the production of some essential products. It could be in uh, in drugs. It could be in the making up of facial masks. It could be in the production of ventilators. And now there is a kind of shift between uh, this uh, demand for protection and more sovereignty, more uh, industrial ability to produce this kind of goods in France, but also in Europe, because with the European summit and the massive recovery plan that has been adopted, now I think that for the French citizen and the French opinion, uh, it is more clear that uh, the EU 
is really a necessary uh, power and institution and help in this particular situation. Because when we look, for instance, uh, and I will be quick, uh, at a recent survey uh, made by YouGov in France last June, uh, 67% of French people reported being more aware that an event of the other side of the world can have consequences in their daily lives. So now there is this very widely awareness of interdependency. So it's more complex than to say France before or Europe before, because there is this general awareness. And on the other hand, when you look at what kind of solution, what should the government do in this situation, the public opinion in France is really split in two parts. 44% of the citizens, the country must regain control of their sovereignty. And it's particularly true, the more right you are going in the public arena, the more support you will have for this option. And the second option with 38% is that, on the contrary, countries must strengthen international cooperation, including uh, Europe or United Nations or WTO. So here, there is a clear awareness, but for the moment, really, the opinion is, is split between the two options. And of course, it is an issue for the current government, of course, this is the cooperation and the EU cooperation, which has been chosen very obviously. That's interesting, this divide that you sketch among the French public. It's also, I think, a silver lining that there is this appreciation of global interdependence among the general public. Uh, Christian, I know that you've been doing some really fascinating public opinion work on how citizens view trade and globalization. Could you expand on this a little bit? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So what we've been doing actually for a couple of years now is that every two years we had a survey amongst people in 14 countries worldwide, amongst which there's some developed countries, but also some emerging markets. And we originally started out with a really fairly positive perception of globalization almost anywhere. And we've seen that... And in how many countries did you do this? Uh, in the latest edition, we did it in 14. And... We can see that sort of in the latest editions, we've seen that sort of people feel the pains of globalization more and they feel the gains less. I think that's a good way to summarize this. There are demands for protectionism that we do see in various ways. But at the same time, we do see that people have actually a very nuanced opinion about globalization. They also see the benefits of it. To me, there's one question really that stands out, which is, does your government enough to protect you against any possible negative side effects of globalization? And almost anywhere, the answer is no. People want their government to do more. Now, the question is, what should that be? And there are basically two directions in which you can go. I mean, you can use tools that we would qualify as protectionist, raise tariffs or make it harder for foreign companies to take over companies in that country. And there is some sympathy for that. But I think we also see that sort of the, the, the strongest correlation of, of feeling the pains of globalization is actually when people worry about their jobs and they worry about their wages. And I think here is another avenue for governments to actually deal with these protectionist pressures. And is this something that we've seen increase over time, this sentiment that governments aren't doing enough to protect, to use that word, to protect citizens and their jobs? 
Yes, we do see that. I mean, especially between our 2018 and our 2020 edition, which has just appeared uh, a couple of weeks ago, we really see a massive difference in that bit. But I mean, this is something that we see predominantly in developed countries. In particular, France is, really stands out in our sample as, as the country that is the most negative about globalization. In the UK or Germany or other comparable countries, we have much more favorable, but still increasingly skeptical opinions. And then when you look at emerging markets, there's none of that concern. People wouldn't even say their government isn't doing enough to protect them. There, it's a completely different picture. That's fascinating. Um, Chris, when you listen to that data and, and also what Emmanuel mentioned regarding this split in the, in the French public, I mean, you're in London, we've all gone through the Brexit saga. How do you think Brexit plays into this? Well, I think Brexit is a, a demonstration of all these things, isn't it? I mean, I think, you know, I think what's interesting for me is that the, the split that Emmanuel described hasn't really changed. You know, if you were to ask people now, look at the polls here, it's still, you know, just over 50% want their sovereignty back, just under 50%, you know, want to keep things open and, and liberalise and, and trade globally. The difference in the UK is that, the, you know, the idea of trading has always been there, whatever side of the argument of Brexit you're on, because the sort of the DNA of the UK is very much around free trade and wanting to trade. The, the issue is, is lots of contradiction between what people want, sovereignty, versus the measures that government is, is doing in order to solve that problem, leaving the EU in this case, uh, whether you agree with that or whether you don't. And, and what that actually means in terms of either being protectionist or putting up barriers or putting up restrictions or changing arrangements across borders, which are in effect, do all of those things. Underlying it, I would go way back, and certainly in the UK's case, this is decades of national economic policies that have led to a situation where the benefits of economic growth have not been distributed. The towns and, and cities that are the poorest are the same towns and cities that were the poorest 20, 30 years ago. And of course, where's the strongest sentiment to have control around your sovereignty? It's those same towns and cities in the main. The more internationalized cities feel, feel quite differently, London particularly, because it's done extremely well out of global growth. And the question for me is, are the policies in place now to solve those root problems? Because if they are, they're going to continue and we're going to be in this juxtaposition for some time. And that will also create an incentive for politicians to focus primarily on how to rebuild local communities or bring back the economy to places that have suffered as a consequence either of the pandemic or as a consequence of broader trends in the global economy. I might also just be just worth noting as well, just to Christian's point um, around the sort of developed and developing market, you know, the standards of living haven't really improved for well over 10 years. And then now we've got massive disruption and uncertainty associated with COVID on top of it, which will, which will rumble on for many years to come. Taxes going up, et cetera, to pay for all this public finance being pumped into the system. You know, it, it's not a surprise that people feel frustrated. They, they feel that they, they're not in control of the situation and, and whether that frustration is aimed at government, asking government to do more. But I think underneath it all, there's a sense that globalization hasn't, for whatever reason, enable people to keep control around the things that they care about, whether that's their jobs, their, their public services, the way they do business, the way they live their lives. Yeah, our survey data supports this, actually. I mean, 
The first question we ask, do you think that globalization is a force for good? And there in the UK, we get an overwhelmingly positive answer, which is what you've described. It's in the DNA of the UK. Well, then we go and ask actually a couple of questions about the details. I mean, do you think globalization is good for job creation, for job security, for wage increases and so on? And on all these details, actually, the UK doesn't do as well as you would expect, sort of giving given the very first impression. So yeah, just to say that this absolutely supports your observation. It raises a number of questions also regarding what trade policy should then look like. Because again, domestic politicians will be under pressure of increasingly skeptical audiences to ensure that trade delivers for them locally, but also is able to protect their jobs and their livelihoods. It's somewhat tempting to suggest that people have become more skeptical about global trade, but at the same time, global trade and export opportunities are one of the routes to get out of the current economic downturn. So how do we square that circle? The the trade policy for the future needs to be more inclusive and more comprehensive, be it at bilateral level in the FTAs that could be concluded between the various superpowers, but also at the level of the WTO. And I'm sure that we will come back to this issue of WTO So that means that, for instance, we need more ambitious chapters on sustainable development. We need more emphasis on the fight against climate change. And we need to be able, between two countries, for instance, committed through FTA, to connect the carbon market and to connect Uh, respective climate policies in order to be in compliance with the Paris Agreement. Because for the moment, for instance, we know that we don't have an agreement on Article 6. So we really need to put more emphasis, to put more ambition on the climate, on the sustainability, on the biodiversity, and also, of course, to give more power, to be more open to civil society. Because now the trade policy matters are no more dealt with in uh, green rooms in Geneva. It is really open. You have a lot of attention from the media. People want to know, want to understand. So the government, they need to be open and transparent. And there has been a big move from the team of the DG Trade uh, in Brussels in this matter after the negotiation with the USA. And I think that it will increase in the future. So it's a new deal in trade policy. It will be easier maybe to start with this new ambition at bilateral level between developed countries. I don't know if we could be optimistic to obtain that same kind of movement and that same kind of improvement at the WTO level, given the state of the organization. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about is a surge in protectionism inevitable? And what does this tell us about the future of trade policy? At a time when the multilateral rules-based order is under threat, conversations about global trade and its contribution to prosperity have never been more important. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2020. 
This series of podcasts is brought to you by AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is knowledge partner of the series. We're back from our break, and I'm here with Emmanuel Bouteau-Stubbs, who is Secretary General of the ICC France, and secondly, Chris Southworth, who is the Secretary General of the ICC UK. Third speaker is Christian Blut, who's Project Manager at the Bertelsmann Stiftung and member of the team working on global economic dynamics. My name is Rem Korteweg. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands. Well, let's talk a little bit about the WTO because um, it seems that companies particularly should be quite concerned about what the global trade landscape coming out of the pandemic looks like. Christian was sketching the issue of subsidies. We've talked a little bit about export restrictive measures, the distortionary effects of protectionism. All of this seems to suggest that at the global level, we have an increasingly unlevel playing field at a time when the international institution, which was designed to smooth some of the humps and obstacles in the global trade system, the WTO, is, let's say, struggling. So how do we get out of this impasse? Are we only looking towards governments to take a stronger, more assertive approach to protect and promote their own economies? Or are we also investing in bringing back some international collaboration, some multilateralism, despite what's happening at the WTO? What, what is the view from, from the ICC on that, Chris? There's a real opportunity. I think, I think Emmanuel's completely right. There's, there's a, a wonderful opportunity for business leaders to, to step forward and put the case to governments. And when we talk about the WTO, the WTO gets a lot of criticism, but actually the WTO as an institution is actually very small. It doesn't make the decisions. It's the government members who make the decisions. So the criticism really needs to sit with the government, not so much with the WTO. There's a terrific opportunity to put forward a compelling narrative as to how and why we should build a more inclusive, greener, more sustainable economy, and why the digital economy can be right at the heart of that for everybody And I don't think that's coming through. You know, you're hearing bits of narratives in different places. It's very fragmented. And then you get very contradictory actions and people can see through that. It confuses everyone. And I'll just illustrate the point. You know, if we want to build an inclusive trade policy, then we should be involving civil society, the NGOs, consumers, unions, green organizations around the table with business and government to come up with the solutions together. In the UK's case, the government has just excluded all of those organizations from all the trade negotiations going forward. They were all involved in the advisory groups advising government on trade deals, and, and now they've just been all kicked out. So the only, only constituency left advising government is business. And actually, that's not in the interests of business, because if the consumers don't agree or civil society doesn't agree, then those trade deals are not going to happen because there'll be such a public opposition to what we're trying to do. So I think there's a real role for business to step forward and help articulate what the government is not articulating or governments are not articulating very well. 
it's a real leadership issue. There's a huge vacuum. Uh, it's a massive job for the new director general of the WTO coming in to try and bring these governments, particularly the big players, get them back around the table, solving their disputes within the WTO. That's what's set up to do. And try and move the reforms forward so that people feel that we're making progress. One of the concerns I have with this is that we tend to focus on the WTO as if it's a silver bullet. And I think what's really important about what you're saying, Chris, is that it's not necessarily the WTO, but it's its members. And it's the, say, the public-private cooperation that underpins some of the agreements that can or should be made, which seems to be missing. Christian, I know that you've done quite some work on the WTO and its future. Should we see the WTO as a silver bullet? And if not, what is it then? No, the WTO is definitely not not a silver bullet. Actually, it's an institution that right now is actually struggling to, to find its role in an increasingly hostile and geoeconomic world. I think what we want to do is we want to make trade actually a driver of the recovery after COVID-19. But what stands in the way is actually a massive amount of distrust amongst major trading players. And we need to deal with this level of distrust. And I think there the WTO can be helpful by doing what it really was designed to do. I mean, this is one of its core function to just act as a forum to deliberate. And I mean, there are sort of ways that the institution can move forward and maybe change it ways that it can become more effective and more successful. That could, for example, mean that you could have plurilateral. So not everyone, but the most important players within the organization agreeing to do certain things. And those things should be things that are designed to build trust. So one thing that I find uh, an interesting idea could be, I mean, we experienced this in the pandemic, that there is actually quite a lot of problem with trade in really critical goods. Um, PPE is the obvious example. And there was something else like that in 2008, 2009, when commodity prices went through the roof. And what was then put in place is a system that monitors price developments and also acts as uh, negotiating platforms where countries, if these prices get too high and there is the danger of food crisis occurring somewhere, they would negotiate the best way how to go about this. So this is a measure how we can rebuild trust in the system that especially on those goods that in the fight against COVID we need most, we will not be left in the rain. I mean, then there is sort of a more difficult agenda that needs to take place in the WTO. And uh, I'd be talking too long if I sketched it now, but it has something to do with making sure that global competition is more fair. Um, it has something to do with bringing green issues, possibly carbon pricing, into the multilateral trading framework. It has something to do with finding common rules on e-commerce and so on. And I think it's important for the major players in the system to generate trust by actually taking these issues seriously in the WTO and to take them forward. It's a fascinating sort of list of issues that you want the DG to tackle. It's going to be a difficult job for whoever can get it. Absolutely. I mean, in this last section, I'd like to focus a little bit on the opportunities and perhaps also the wish list we have to push the reset button, to rebuild trust. It's actually interesting listening to all three of you. Trust is an essential ingredient in everything all three of you have said. 
whether it's Chris talking about the necessity to build trust with the broader community dealing with trade and government policy, the trust we need to have among countries perhaps that are actually real competitors in the trade sphere that seems to be lacking, but also trust between governments and citizens, citizens that are increasingly skeptical, that have demands and asks of their governments that seem to be not entirely aligned with government policy. And how do you rebuild that trust? How do you regain the trust that trade, as Christian said, can indeed be a driver for growth to emerge out of this pandemic? In other words, kind of how do we get that new debate, that new narrative that Chris has been talking about? How do we get that up and running? Who wants to take a stab at that first? Yes, on this new narrative, we have, of course, first a kind of domestic homework to do. So we need to work on a more positive narrative on what is globalization, why is it good for the companies, for the job creation, what kind of opportunities could globalization bring to everyone. And in France, during the pandemic, we have been quite vocal with the MEDEF and Business France and other partners to show that you cannot export if you are not importing because you need raw material. You cannot sell a tire if you are not importing rubber. You cannot sell clothing in cotton if you are not importing cotton raw material. So this, again, this is the kind of uh, explanation, awareness of interdependency. But of course, you have the theory of the comparative advantages. So one country cannot do everything. So here, there is a kind of social and economical choice of the sectors for the future. And I do think that during this crisis, which is not uh, over uh, right now, there have been a lot of positive things. I mean, the companies, they have been able to protect the health of employees And they have been able to assess that the employees are working remotely. They have been very serious. I mean, the productivity has been high. So that means that now there is a kind of new trust for the future between employers and employee. For the moment, the social dialogue has been more at peace than in the past, at least in France. And of course, we, we know that some businesses will be very much encouraged by this crisis. We are talking here about digitalization and new offer of services, including in the way the companies are exporting and are collecting information on new markets, on new clients. Because, for instance, from a very practical point of view, with the cancellation of all the trade fairs, you need to invent new ways of connecting uh, people abroad, make new clients. How can you show your offer of goods and services? Because, uh, of course, in Europe, we are producing high-value goods and services. So companies need to be able to explain what are the technologies, what are the content, what is the impact on the environment. So I think that really it will be a kind of boost for sectors, for new ways of doing business, and it will speed up in a dramatic way, and it's already the case, the digitalization efforts and shift, not only for the companies, but also for the individuals and also for the state and the public authorities. 
That's a very strong appeal for much broader dialogue about the future trade environment. Chris, what's on your wish list? Well, I, I mean, I would copy some of that. I mean, I think the key to, I think trust is the fundamental problem uh, uh, or is a fundamental problem in all of this. And the way to deal with it is to deliver something different that resonates with what people want. So I think, you know, at global level, the, the WTO, they've got to deliver an e-commerce deal that has more benefit to more people and be able to clearly demonstrate how that's going to benefit the world. I think at national level, I think we can really get behind practical initiatives, reforms. We're going to have a whole bunch of legal reforms coming through the system in the UK here in 2021 to digitize uh, the economy or, or, or deal with the remaining legal barriers uh, that are preventing the digitization of the economy. And by our early estimates, that's going to bring hundreds of millions of pounds of new investment and market opportunities into the economy. It's a real bonus. It's a plus. You know, we've got climate change negotiations. Again, if I take the UK as an example, there is a huge appetite to deliver net zero by 2050. It's a real rallying point uh, across the business community, across the unions, across the consumer groups, uh, across the NGO and civil society community. You know, it's where we all agree. And I think, you know, if we can deliver on those initiatives, then we will stand a fighting chance of rebuilding the trust uh, where people can see us working together to provide practical solutions that are going to do something different to what they've been experiencing for the last 15, 20 years. And Christian, given what you know from your research, does this sound like a recipe that's going to deliver for those skeptical publics that are raising more and more questions about globalization? Yes, I think there were a lot of really good points there that would resonate with people. I mean, one big issue is people do want trade to be respective of social norms. And that is something where I think quite a lot of gains can be made in the public opinion. I guess we should take this crisis as an opportunity to really step up two things. One is at the level of global governance to rethink how the system work and to actually engage in closer rulemaking rather than stressing sovereignty and trying to get a competitive edge on other countries by either subsidizing one's own companies much more than what another country can do. And then we enter some sort of arms race, but really to agree sort of what is the basis on which we want to compete with each other. I mean, I'm not against competition and I'm actually also not against subsidies per se. To redefine sort of how do we compete, what is what we recognize as fair and what mechanisms can we build to support each other, for example, in the light of the pandemic? And then we have the internal dimension. And I think here it's sort of the edge really is to help people deal with negative side effects of globalization, which we all know exist and which maybe we have ignored for too long and not really done enough about. So I personally would really advocate how putting into place programs that help people who get into difficulties because their jobs are under pressure, be it from globalization, digitalization, or actually maybe also the shift to a greener economy once we get serious on carbon pricing. I think that's quite an important thing. And that would help build a consensus to actually embrace an open and forward-looking economy.
A final question I have for you, and these have all been three very thoughtful interventions, is a year from now, are we still in this era of protectionism, as I called it at the beginning? Or have we rediscovered a track towards a more multilateral, perhaps less conflictual trade environment? Chris, you first. When you're talking about global governments, uh, there are a lot of them. Um, and it's like an oil tanker that once it goes in a direction, it's very difficult to stop it quickly. And that's the situation we're in at the moment. I think in a year's time, we'll be still talking about protectionism. The trend is probably still upward. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be starting to put a stronger narrative forward to counter the arguments to put protectionist barriers up. We're going to have, as well, opportunities within the COVID recovery. The next 12 months is going to be all about the COVID recovery to work together internationally, to cooperate more, to make sure that people are safe in where they're working and, and how they're living. But, you know, we're going to have things like, the, you know, vaccines coming forward. And, and if there's a big fight over who gets the vaccine and, and who pays the most and how we distribute the vaccine, then that will absolutely destroy any trust that we build in the meantime. So we've got to try and shift the narrative to one that's more cooperative. And I, and I come back to the point I made earlier. I think the role the businesses play is absolutely critical. It's the one constituency that can really influence the agenda. But we, we can't say stay quiet. We must speak up and try and all put our shoulders to the corner of that oil tanker and move it one inch to the left or right. Uh, it doesn't really matter, but get that direction moving so that when we're talking about these issues in two, three, four, five years time, we've actually stemmed the flow and it's starting to look a lot more positive in outlook. What I also take away from your comments, Chris, is that this might not be the trough yet. I mean, things could actually get worse. Like you say, if we don't cooperate over potential vaccines, trust might be further away still. But thank you also for shedding a more optimistic light about where we can end up also if businesses start to speak up. Emmanuel, what will the world look like in a year's time? Well, of course, uh, we will have before that a certain number of important elections that will shape a bit this uh, new landscape. But I do think that we will still be in one year in this kind of concern. We, in globalization, we know that from an historical point of view, we have faced some expansionist phases in the global trade and some phases during which the trade was uh, contracting itself. And I think that in one year time, we will still facing a lot of obstacles. We will still facing a lot of subsidies, uh, of course, for the government that have the means, the financial means to do so. We are just at the beginning to see the uh, economic and social impact of the sanitary crisis, we are only at the beginning, even if already Chris mentioned a very important drop in the British GDP. And for France, it's not minus 20, but minus 13 for the moment. Even if the, the Minister for Economy considered that we have a, have a chance to eliminate the effect of the crisis in two years' time, I don't think it's realistic. So we should stay motivated. We should uh, keep on working at the level of the business. We have a lot to do in terms of trade finance, in terms of digitalization, in terms of the everyday life, and uh, we will do so uh, for sure. And I think that the key thing 
to give an answer to the title of this podcast, Is a Surge in Protectionism Inevitable? We are, of course, in the middle of it. It is not over. It will not be over by next year. But the key thing in order to put order in this new phase of globalization is to be sure that there is a surge in the demand of protection coming from the citizens. So this demand of protection should be taken into account by the government. But we should avoid that it leads to a surge in protectionism. So we should find other avenues, other solutions to give right to this demand of protection by new rules, by a new mechanism, by a new degree of openness to the concerns of the public opinion. And so we may well be talking about Macron's statement to protect without protectionism for some time to come. Christian, final thoughts from you on this? Yeah, I can see this really go two ways. I mean, it is perfectly possible that in a year from now, we are in a terrible situation. Furlonging schemes have come to an end, insolvencies and unemployment really go through the roof. We see lots of overproduction being dumped onto other markets and then being responded with tariffs and anti-dumping measures. Worse than that, there could be sicken thy neighbor policies by competing for a vaccine and not granting it to parts of the population. So it could be really, really terrible. It could also be really good because there could be the realization through this pandemic and that we really are much better off solving the big challenges for humanity altogether. And that could give a new push to finding international cooperation, dealing with the pandemic, dealing with the challenge of climate change, dealing with updating our international organizations and our system of global governance in a way that we can actually find a new foundation for an international trading and economic cooperation that's much more suitable to the needs of the 21st century than what we have now, which I think it really depends quite a lot on political events in which direction we are going. This is, of course, the US election, but it's not only the US election. It also really depends on how other players engage with each other. And I actually quite liked Emmanuel's idea of civil society and businesses also playing a role in this, not leaving it just to governments, but actually trying to go across countries on a level citizen to citizen. And of course, with the AIG Global Trade Series and this podcast, we're trying to contribute to that in our own little small way to get a dialogue up and running between thinkers, policymakers, shapers of global trade, both in the public and in the private sector. And with that, I'm terribly sorry, but we've come to an end of our conversation. It's been fascinating talking to the three of you. We've talked about whether a surge in protectionism is inevitable, and it may not be inevitable for the future, although it certainly looks like we're in a surge of protectionism at the moment. We've also talked a lot about trust, the necessity to rebuild trust, and that trust is an essential agreement in trade flows, which I think is something to consider for some of our subsequent conversations, how we regain that trust. Because ultimately, economic enterprise, though it focuses on facts and figures, it's also a very human enterprise where trust is an absolutely essential ingredient to making it happen. With that, let me thank our three speakers, Emmanuel Buteau-Stubbs, Secretary General of ICC France, Chris Southworth, Secretary General of the ICC UK, and Christian Blut, Project Manager at the Bertelsmann Stiftung and part of the Global Economic Dynamics team. Thank you very much for joining me today. 
Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you. The AIG Global Trade Series is an international partnership between AIG, the International Institute of Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Jacques Delors Institute, the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and interviews from partners in the Global Trade Series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2020.